Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO News, this is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks. Highlights of our weekday discussion on race, diversity, and issues that spring from the Tops Massacre on 514. Today, another place, the same journey. When the tragedy occurred, it was so much shock heard around the community. What can we learn from South Carolina after the Mother Emanuel AME Church shooting in 2015? I think we're still healing. I'll just say that again, it's a journey. It doesn't end. It can change. Um, But the intense pain, I would probably say has dissipated somewhat. Um, but, But still, we remain hopeful. Also ahead, KeyBank's Chichi Owowane on development, the parent network on their outreach in the Broadway Fillmore neighborhood, and the Buffalo Police Athletic League with a new program to bring cops and kids together in Buffalo. I'm Angeli Preston. Thanks for being with us. Up first, Jay Moran with Tanel Jones from the Resiliency Program at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. On June 17, 2015, a gunman entered the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and shot and killed nine black people. Joining us right now from South Carolina is Tanel Jones. Tanel is a licensed marriage and family therapist and also a licensed addictions counselor and is part of the Resilience Program, as you heard Lynn Bader just mention. And she joins us by phone this morning. Good morning to you, Tanel. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for sharing with us here in Buffalo as we work through what happened here on May 14th. If you could, Tanel, just take us back and try to recall the emotions of Charleston after June 17th, 2015. Yeah, um, so obviously when the tragedy occurred, it was so much shock heard around the community, um, but also so much um, connectedness, people wanting to be there and support for each other. It actually reminded me of, you know, when 9-11 happened, how people would speak to you right after that. So there was this sense of community. I know there was like a bridge walk where people were walking out, walking over, holding hands, you know, speaking about the the possibility of hope, healing, and connection. Um, but still so much devastation impacted Charleston community, even to this day. But I think it's inspired a lot of um, great things as well, you know, again, with a lot of the annual events that that have occurred, as well as, you know, now having um, the International African American Museum coming here. So I think it's a place for people to come and learn more about what happened, but also really focus on who they are um, and their characters and, and make some changes as necessary. Tanelle, you most certainly brought up a lot of points that uh, uh, deem uh, some follow-up uh, questions, but let's talk about what brought our attention to you, the Resilience Program. This is a, a, an effort by the Medical University of South Carolina. Tell us uh, about how it originated and what it does. Yeah, so um, it originated, obviously, we had to be able to partner with Mother Emanuel Church. And so um, I don't know if people are aware that uh, when the massacre occurred, all of the leadership was was in that church at the time, and they were murdered. So the, you know, they had to establish new leadership, and um, 
so that was really hard, like so much grief for the church and so much loss. And so partnering with MUSC and other, and actually also the Department of Mental Health, um, we created a, what we call Mother Emanuel Empowerment Center, which was a building house right next to the church. And it was a safe space for people to come in. We had so many different programmings available, support groups, just programming around wellness, understanding trauma, um, just really connecting to, again, the, the families and the communities. We actually started before it was complete. I would say the Mother Mary Empowerment Center really began um, during, the, during the trial, the United States versus Dylan Ruth trial. Um, is where we really showed our support for, for the families going through such a difficult, um, just a difficult time. It's just so hard to put into words because I can't imagine having to go through that and sit through that. Um, so, Absolutely. You mentioned the families, and we've heard uh, some from the families here in Buffalo uh, since May 14th. Uh, but uh, what about for you? You were right there with many of them. Uh, talk about what they went through um, perhaps commonalities and maybe in some ways uh, differences, how they may have differed and how they responded and how they moved through this this time after uh, this tragedy. Yeah, so with grief and loss and trauma, people experience it differently for different reasons. Um, and so, I, like I said, I think when a lot of them reconnected during the trial when they came from different states so they i saw a sense of togetherness and we were in this together um during that time you know some people obviously it was hard for them to want to be involved and engaged so they kind of like went and focused on you know just their own selves and their own family which is totally understandable um it's interesting because as a therapist doing this work with with this type of tragedy it's not like you kind of have this separation like we became part of the families we we got to know everybody's you know birthday and important life events as they continued on this healing journey for themselves and for the church you know being in the church often and for all events when they lost a family member we were present so it's just so many things happening that um i think if you know if you are a therapist getting involved in this it's you have to be open to really connecting on a different level versus this professional and client level. It's, it's just opening yourself up to, to truly be a part of their, I'm going to say, loss and hope, you know. It's interesting a way of describing, like you said, loss and hope, because you do have to move on, right? Um, and it was... Uh, Seven years ago, but uh, seven difficult years, I can only imagine, for, for some of the folks involved here. What about for you? Uh, I know we talked yesterday, previous to this, you were actually the chief operating officer with another organization and joined the Resilience Program to become one of the, the counselors involved. How about for you? How has it been for you and for maybe your other counselors as well, working through this because like you said you're you became very attached to the families yeah i you know i acknowledge it as a as an honorable experience um and just grateful that these magnificent beings allowed me to be part of again which which could be considered one of the most devastating things that they could possibly experience and so I felt honored in that in this journey with them this journey of healing um, and was really 
again, I, I never made it about me and, and my thoughts. So just being fully present with them, that's, kind, that's how I function in this. And still, even to this day, when we've had these connections with these families for over these amount of years. And so they might still, like, reach out and, you know, I check on them when I can. So it's just really been, like I said, phenomenal in that they embraced us. You know, a lot of times when people are hurting and healing, mental health hasn't always been like a focus. And so promoting that it's okay to talk about what you're feeling. It's okay to be part of, you know, the Mother Mania Empowerment Center, to be part of healing has really, really been, I think, um, significant just in in addressing the stigma, which is also, you know, this is a church community, so there is also that kind of, you know, most churches like, hey, we just focus on, you know, um, what what we can get from our higher power versus coming and talking to somebody about what we're feeling. So I think it really opened that door and and a space to start to to recognize the importance of mental health and getting help, and you can't do this alone. It's interesting that you talk about mental health because one of the things that caught me right here in Buffalo, May 14th happened by the end of May 14th, you know, mental health counselors were uh, omnipresent in the neighborhood around the tops where uh, 10 people were shot and killed. Um, And you mentioned how sometimes when it comes to mental health, there are those barriers. Can you talk about those and perhaps maybe how some of those barriers maybe hopefully have gone away or at least been eased over the last seven years? Yeah, so um, the barriers, again, of just the stigma, because of this being a faith community, most faith communities are just like, hey, let's just pray about it. Just come and talk to your pastor about what's going on. And I think um, just, again, like I said, seeing this community really open up to recognizing that they needed more, right, that that we were maybe invited in because of, you know, their faith, if that makes any sense. And and so so that just kind of lowering those lowering that down a little bit was helpful and and now I think what we've seen is we, and we provided mental health in so many different ways. We went to them. Like they didn't have to come to the empowerment center, so we went to where they were. We did phone, we did video, we had different types of community events, anything. You know, one of the events that I really enjoyed doing was like our annual fall. We call it the Good Good Grief Youth Fall Festival, and it was a space for children to come to one of the county parks and just do lots of work, um, like art and create, like, Um, creative arts exercises and games and they could connect to each other and still remember their loved ones in in many ways so we did different things like that and so it wasn't again maybe just like this whole traditional you come in and you sit down and you talk I think that was because we were open and flexible it allowed people to like I said just really accept that it was okay to come in and be part of healing and, and support and get support as needed. This morning on Buffalo What's Next, we're talking with Tanelle Jones, a licensed marriage and family therapist and licensed addictions counselor. She is part of the Resilience Program out of Charleston, South Carolina, established by the uh, Medical University of South Carolina following June 17th, 2015. That is when a gunman entered the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and shot and killed nine black people. Uh, Tanelle, uh, of course, one thing that is still to come here in Buffalo that we have, that you have experienced in Charleston, the 
trial of Dylan Roof, who was convicted of these uh, killings and I believe uh, sentenced to two death sentences, one of which is under appeal right now. Um, but that is an aside factor. I, I wonder, of course, if it was probably like this in Charleston for the first week, two weeks afterwards, a high presence of national media that probably went away for the most part. Did they come back for that trial? And how was that for the, the people involved, the, the victims' families? Yeah, there were so many different types of media present um, for the trial. And, and we, again, the, the team um, that was present for the trial, for the families, we wanted to you know make a safe space for them to talk to the media if they wanted to, but also to shield them, you know, because many of them had not experienced like, you know, going to court and, and having to face the person who took their loved ones away. So we, you know, we kind of were like protectors for the family. But, yeah, there were a lot of media present wanting to talk and wanting to share their stories. And as, as mental health counselors, we wanted to help them if they wanted to talk to them. So we, you know, if we created a safe space for them to practice and just, just also just giving them like, hey, it's okay if you say no. Like, it's okay to set boundaries. It's okay to not answer certain questions, even if you do want to talk to them. So we provided them with a lot of different tools to cope and, and, and just engage in self-care during that time. I'm wondering if, uh, if that's the advice you would give to Buffalo as we move forward here. Like I said, we're still some time off from any potential trial, but there's a lot to come, obviously, for uh, the folks here in Buffalo. You know that uh, better than anybody uh, dealing with this now for the last seven years. But what kind of advice would you give to the community of Buffalo in terms of trying to help those people most directly involved with this shooting? Yeah, um, I think... You know, again, creating spaces that allows them to um, come, you know, again, thinking outside the box. Things don't have to be um, kind of uh, routine. So being flexible in how you deliver support. Um, if it's during the trial, I, you know, I would encourage to have as much support as you possibly can um, for everybody, you know, everybody's needs to help meet everybody's needs during that time. But I would say I think the biggest thing is just recognizing that everybody grieves differently. And so to not have expectations that people are going to present a certain way. And for those of you who are involved in supporting the families in, in Buffalo as much as you can, make it about them and not about, you know, I know most people probably are feeling pain. But one of the things that I think is helpful is I was not directly impacted by the Mother Emanuel tragedy, so it definitely made it easier for me to be part of the support and the healing team. And so for for providers who are, I can't imagine, um, you know, they may have their own grief and trauma as well. So just be mindful of that and, and making the healing about those people who were impacted directly. Yeah, thank you very much for, for saying that, because it does bring me to a topic I wanted to maybe try to discuss with you and get your perspective on something. This particular program started in the aftermath of the May 14th shootings here in Buffalo. And one of the topics that we discuss uh, behind the scenes a little bit is we do not have any wish to trigger more trauma for this community. Talk about how to balance that particular uh, element, I guess, and maybe what you saw with some of the family members. Did did the higher attention, did it did it hurt some of these people? Or can you maybe take us through that a little bit? 
I think from just the overall, not being able to speak to everyone individually, obviously, I think overall, um, most people felt the love and support um, during that time. But I'm pretty sure it was still hard because, you know, these tragedies happened. But before the tragedy, there was also probably a lot of other things happening in everybody's lives. Um, It might have been harder for families who lived out of town um, and had to travel uh, um, to, you know, especially like during the trial, even though there, the support was there, I think it still was probably hard because maybe they had to be away from other family members to be here. Um, so it's just so many different dynamics because it was so many people, which I'm pretty sure that you guys are experiencing um, in Buffalo, the different people, the different backgrounds, the different lifestyles, and trying to accommodate accommodate all of all of that can be, um, you know, could be. I think a hefty, a hefty task. Right. So, yeah. You did mention, uh, like you said, that the, the bridge walk uh, was a very memorable description by you that came afterwards, uh, kind of a community support uh, development in Charleston to try to help move past uh, June 17th, 2015. What, what about some of the other responses from the community? Just general, generally speaking, what did you see? I I will say I remember hearing about a group of people and I think they called themselves the unsung heroes after a couple of, after a couple of years because um they say no not a lot of people were aware of when the when um the massacre occurred and and Dylan Roof was caught and identified as the um the perpetrator in in this tragedy there was a group of individuals who went through the communities from my understanding you know encouraging people to not go into being violent like let's just focus on healing um and not cause you know like other challenges with riots and just the anger because of course everybody felt so angry right that this has happened especially in in a place like where we most people have been taught you're supposed to be the safest in church so so I'm aware of um, these group of individuals going around and making sure that the community um, focused on peace and healing and not ang- not expressing their anger in unhealthy ways. Let me say that because I don't think there's anything wrong with being angry, but not expressing that anger in unhealthy ways. Is uh, June 17th, 2015, is it marked? Do, do they, are, is there a, an annual event on the anniversary? Uh, can you talk about that a little bit, please? Yeah, so... Each each person that was lost in the tragedy was given their own special day over the, I think it's 10 days, um, marking that, that full week and a half. Um, so, and then there are community events around in the, in the community about, um, you know, activities and communities, events to address what happened, again, to show support of healing and... Um, and just maybe private family events as well to, to mark to mark that this change has, like I said, impacted their lives. And then finally, um, how is Charleston today? Uh, seven years, more than seven years after uh, June seventeenth, twenty fifteen. I think every time, unfortunately, you know, we hear about these other mass violence incidents, Charleston. Is reminded of what happened, right? And even the media will, will bring up Dylan Ruth in some way, shape, or fashion. So um, 
I think we're still healing. I'll just say that again. It's a journey. It doesn't end. It can change. Um, but the intense pain, I would probably say, is dissipated somewhat. Um, but but still, we remain hopeful. And uh, then I I also almost forgot to ask about the church, Mother Emanuel. Um, what is its status today? Um, I. Well, during the pandemic, I'm pretty sure that they were doing services online, I think, and now they're doing a lot of restructuring and construction. Um, but I hear that they're still hanging in there and, and um, going strong. Counselor Tanel Jones, back in Buffalo now, where Dave Debo is with Key Bank's Chichi Owoene, one of the people on the east side with boots on the ground with several programs. One of those programs is called Eastside Commercial Districts Program, a grant program that provided grant dollars to business owners that own commercial properties for interior and exterior improvements to their property. And that was to help fight blight and abandonment. And the hope is that once we were able to do this, you could then encourage more investments on the east side. Another program that we actually run that was incredibly successful, at least I spent an inordinary amount of time on that program, is what we call the Community-Based Real Estate Development Training Program. And it was basically a real estate development course, um, 19 to 23 weeks, where we put uh, folks, aspiring developers that own commercial properties on the east side, through this course in partnership with uh, UB. Oh, now see, when you first described it, I thought it would be... Home ownership education. You're talking about how to invest in an area that needs the investment. Correct. Okay. But more importantly, how to get the folks who live in those neighborhood to drive the economic revitalization of their own neighborhoods. So we're talking about folks who own commercial properties, but just to not necessarily have the wherewithal on what to do with them. So we put them through this, the equivalent of of, of a master's level real estate development training program uh, to teach them the, the super nuts of um, commercial building uh, development. And I think we are now in the uh, the third uh, iteration of that program. And graduates, after graduation, uh, they have access to funds set aside to help them develop, um, you know, properties that they may own or do infill projects. I don't want to be a pessimist here, but has it worked because anyone who goes to the east side, I think, still sees vacant buildings, still sees a little bit of blight, still sees a lack of investment. Well, yeah, so the program started about three years ago. Um, and obviously, the ills of the east side, the challenges... Are bigger than any one program. No, <laughs> right. I realize that when I and, ask the and, question. And those things, sure. you know, do take time. But I think it's, um, it's, it's a right start. And I think eventually though the the fruits of those labors will start to pay okay. off small seeds in the ground maybe a sprout but not a tree yet yes okay then let's fast forward to 514 the tops shuts down the community talks a lot about the fact that there's a food desert there some even call it food apartheid the only supermarket in approximately three miles is no longer part of the equation you were boots on the ground what did you see? So 5.14 happened on a Saturday. I was actually outside working on my car. <laughs> um, 
I got text messages, I got phone calls, and I wasn't entirely sure what was going on. Sure. And it was when I finally got another text message that someone told me that, you know, there's been mass shooting on the east side. And I was just completely numb. But the next day, despite being very, very angry about the situation, I realized that I had to do something. And I knew that I was in a position to do something because of my current role as the uh, corporate responsibility officer and community relations manager for KeyBank. I made a few phone calls. So I spoke with Candace Moppins. I think Candace was the third person whom I spoke with. And I asked her, what do we do? The only supermarket on the east side is no longer. And who knows how long it's going to take for it to come back online. What do we do? How can we, how can I help? How can mm-hmm. we help? And she told me that they have a 10 passenger van that is out there in the parking lot that they've used for delivery services for seniors. And sometimes they use it to take seniors to grocery stores to pick up stuff. So I said, great. So let's fill it with food. Let, let's, let's fill it with food. And she said, well, unfortunately, it has flat tires. Uh-huh. So it's out of commission at the moment. So I said to her, oh, so what's the plan? And I think she said something to the effect of, tomorrow's Monday, we're going to get it to a mechanic shop and, 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 and fix it. And I said to her, <laughs> I said to her, um, I don't think we can wait till tomorrow. Let's, let's fix that now. So she mm-hmm. said, what are your ideas? Got off the phone with her, called a buddy of mine who owns a tire shop. There you go. And he told me if he can get the if he can get the truck here, we will take care of it. Excited, got off the phone with him, called Candace, and I said to Candace, we can get this fixed today. And she said, Okay, what's the plan? And I said, we have to get it to a um to a tire shop on Bailey and 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 Walden. And she said, How well, how are we going to get it there? I was like, Oh, great questions. Call back my friend. <laughs> and I said, Would you happen to know a tow truck? And he said, yes, here's my buddy's contact information. Call him and let him know what's going on. He called his friend and he said, this would typically cost upwards of $200, but I'll give you a discount based on the situation. And I sure. said, sure, I, we can, I can handle that. I ran over there and by the time I got there, they were already put in the, uh, the 10 passenger van on a flatbed and I drove with them to the shop and they fixed the tires and I paid a tow truck and I called Candace. The, the van is ready. Let's, let's, and let's. food delivery started the next day? Exactly. Wow. Yep. How big is the need? How many people did you deliver to? I'm not sure. That's something that I would have to check in with Candace because okay. once I did that, I realized there's other needs out there as well and other organizations that are doing things. Mm-hmm. So I just, you know, just kept it moving. But I have stayed in contact with her. As a result, you know, we managed to put together this farmer's market. Do you think food is the, maybe one of the most important ones, but is it the biggest concern in the community right now? It is a big concern, but I also believe Another major concern, at least what I've been hearing on, on the ground, is um, just access to jobs, access to good-paying jobs. And this past weekend, I, I had several conversations with folks, and I believe I heard several times hands-on internship program, hands-on you know, means of providing skills to young people on the east side. So I think those are some of the things that w- that we need to see more of on the east side to just move things forward. That's Chichi Owowene. This is Buffalo What's Next producer picks. Recent interviews from WBFO's daily podcast and discussion program on race, education, and our shared humanity. 
With so much attention on the lack of resources on the east side, let's pause now to talk about a new resource that moved in there. Kimberly Kajioka and Bradford Watts are with the Parent Network. New to the Broadway Fillmore neighborhood, they discussed the move and their mission with Jay Moran. We're going to be talking a little bit about disabilities and what about how parents and families are helped out when one of their uh, children, perhaps, has uh, needs. But Kimberly, why don't you just give us the, the, the definition then uh, to start of a parent Network of Western New York. Sure, thank you so much. So Parent Network of Western New York exists to help parents and families of children with disabilities who need to access services in Western New York. Um, a lot of the focus of our work is on educational advocacy, so we will work with um, families who perhaps their children aren't getting the services that they need or they might need more services, so we'll um, assist them in advocating with the school district. What kind of services are available? So uh, we will provide one-on-one um, -on -one support. So if a person needs specific um, assistance, perhaps sitting in on a CSE meeting, a special education meeting for their child, they don't have the skills right now to advocate for their child. So we'll help them and coach them on how to do that. We have support groups, so parents who have ongoing um, concerns that they want to talk to other families with and to provide support, so we'll do that. Um, we also provide, if a, if a person, let's say a person has a disability, but that they it hasn't been formally diagnosed as a disability, our eligibility navigator will help them to gather all the paperwork that's necessary to advocate uh, or to um, access services in those service systems. Um, we provide behavior support. So if a family's struggling with a child's behavior, um, our behavior specialist will go in right into the home and help them to um, understand what the child's trying to communicate and how to best meet that, that child's needs. Uh, we also provide a lot of educational workshops and trainings. So we, um, not only to families, we have over 70 different training curricula that we can provide to families, but to educators, to um, academic staff, to uh, paraprofessionals and professionals in the disability field um, and just to the community in general. So a lot of different training that we do. And um, finally, we just have a, a plethora of online resources. So if you go to our website at Parent Network Western New York, or Parent Network WNY.org, uh, you can just navigate our um, website for different resources. When you talk about identification, and uh, Bradford, you can uh, perhaps uh, chime in on this as well. Is that an issue? Is it an issue when it comes to identifying if it's your child or uh, your brother, niece, nephew, whatever the case may be, that that person might have some disability that qualifies them, that makes them in need for these services? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, that I think that it's it's important to understand, and it's different on on very varying cultural sure, of course. Uh, levels in terms of how families will uh, deal with that. It's important that the parent network provides that type of opportunity, that flexibility, has incredible staff that can begin to help in that process. As a young parent myself at the time, uh, it was a daunting process to come into a room of those that have these professional uh, letters behind their names sure. and 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 many won't look like I look like uh, and they're telling me all of these things that I'm not sure of why you've selected my child for uh, and then you're also saying that this child will do this and that uh, and telling me that I need to follow along with what they're saying uh, to have a great organization to come in and, and, and help and give you the tools and resources um, to help you navigate that is vital 
And it's important when a, when a, when a home, a family uh, is facing other challenges and struggles, and now they're dealing with, you know, a loved one and child or a family member that may be struggling in that area. You know, when it comes to that reaching out for that, that help and getting that help, a, a key part also is, again, breaking down the barriers. Mm-hmm. Parent Network relocated to the Broadway Fillmore neighborhood, what? Two years ago, maybe? Yes, in 2020. What, uh, what, what prompted that move? Sure. So about six years ago, yeah. um, a group of agencies came together and said, you know, we really want to do a collaborative model and, and provide services, um, a one-stop shop, if you will. And so it was ep- uh, Epic, Every Parent Influences Children, and the Mental Health Advocates. Um, they, they were the three core agencies, along with the Learning Disabilities Agency, which has recently merged with Catalysia to perform, to um become the Beyond Support Network. So those four agencies started looking at this model, doing all the research and the work, finding a location. And But it was a very intentional decision to move into the Broadway film okay. area because um, we recognize that different pockets in the city of Buffalo, there's a great underserved population. Mm-hmm. So um, the opportunity came that we got a fantastic building there. And um, we we moved in with the... With the um, intent to really work and focus on providing more services to these um, to those folks in that area um, as well as other areas on the east side what about outreach then I mean obviously just having the location there yep. is is key and I uh, know there's no doubt about that mm-hmm. but what about how do you get out into a neighborhood that has changed uh, dramatically in the last few years and has also changed over the last, you know, couple of generations. Sure. I mean, the Broadway Fillmore area is so transitional in that there's a lot of refugees and immigrants that live in that area. So, um, it, and I think, but it's also what's unique about that area is it's also so many people in Western New York identify as being from that neighborhood right, myself. Right, yes, my right, grandmother yes. lived th- in that neighborhood, you know, so I'm from that area. Um, so I think there's, there's a sense of pride that makes it a tad bit easier for us okay. to, go, to go out and do that outreach. But um, we do a lot of outreach in whether we're uh, partnering with um, organizations that are from that area and we'll table it, events, uh, do those things, um, working with the schools in that area. So um, there's definitely an intentional outreach to um, reach those areas. Plus the building itself, we do things like having a farmer's market a couple of days a week. Okay. Uh, Jericho Road organizes that. They're the health center that's uh, in, one in the building as well. Um, you know, we're talking about doing trick-or-treating in the neighborhood and those mm-hmm. types of things. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's just getting out and being part of the community you know i've lunched the broadway market you know regularly and accessing those services so you know really it's it's that um the presence is important but the outreach has to be intentional we're talking with uh kimberly kajoka she's the executive director of the uh, parent network of western new york and with her uh bradford watts who is the co-chair of the board for the parent network of western new york cultural differences mm-hmm. come into play here, don't they, right? Um, you were talking about refugees, but maybe this, let's just talk about maybe going back to Bradford, your experience. Um, like you said, back in the early 80s, you walked into a room, everybody there didn't look like you, yeah. and you, but they wanted you to trust Exactly. And, 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 and I don't mean anything disparaging in terms of, you know, our school systems are doing the best that they can. Uh, and they're doing the best in terms of providing as much support to such uh, different cultures 
um, different backgrounds and different disabilities. Uh, so I, I want to make that clear. Sure. It was just, you know, when you're a young person, you're, you're single, you're, you're trying to do the best in terms of you can for your child. Uh, it, it can be daunting when you know that, the, you know, you've got a room of folks that you have no, you know, knowledge of or and you got to build the relationship. So that was the important thing for me which is part of what I always do in terms of that is try to, as Kim was mentioning before, make that engagement opportunity to learn uh, and engage and get there to be a, uh, a, a discourse of conversation around uh, my loved one. Right. And uh, so that was, that was successful. I have to, uh, to say that. But I can see... Um, especially being a product. Kim and I both are uh, proud East Buffalo, East Side uh, products. Uh, they come out uh, into this neighborhood with a sense of pride, with a sense of uh, determination to, to be of service. And so a lot of times now that we see the, the change in the dynamic of the culture that's around there, to have a Jericho Road Ministries that is in this building and bringing in uh, other populations and cultures into the, the this area and arena. Uh, but there's a proud, I think, history in terms of how East Buffalo, East Side, um, always was this melting pot, I think. And I think that was something that, that, that is inherent in um, making the engagement process Somewhat easier, but um, I think also necessary. Um, I think it's that hidden gem. A lot of times there takes a lot of pressure. I'm glad this show is here because we see that, you know, in this time of what ha has transpired after, after May 14th, uh, there's been a lot of attention, uh, but there's been constant pressure that's been over on in this area of, of, of the city. Uh, and, and I think... Uh, it may have culminated in such a tragic uh, end in terms of what happened that day, but it's also been, I think, that pressure point to where we're seeing uh, products of the community for service uh, really shining a light and creating this gem that has been hidden here on this side of town uh, for so long. And uh, I think it's bringing forth an intent to to be of service. Bradford Watts and Kimberly Kajioka from the Parent Network. We end today with Dave Debo and Nakia Kemp from the Buffalo Police Athletic League. Most people know us for leagues, so basketball leagues, baseball yeah, leagues. sports stuff sports during stuff. the warmer mm -hmm. months. Yep. And in the past five years, we've gone into schools and provided after-school programming with sports clinics and camps. Um, so we've kind of dibbled and dabbled in a whole lot. The programming probably has not changed, but I imagine some of the content has changed after May 14th. Talk about that. Oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, really making sure that all of our programs have a social and emotional component, that we're really looking at the whole child. So we began to look at not just the physical fitness piece, but also the nutrition piece, also the mental health piece. So all of that, uh, making sure that our youth have everything that they need in order to function every day. What are you seeing? What kind of problems are they bringing to the table, perhaps now, mm -hmm. that they wouldn't have had last year at this time? I think, you know, even coming out of COVID, it was, it was really difficult. I think we saw a spike in just anxiety. 
mm. and stress. Um, little kids having a lot of stress and anxiety and not really knowing how to channel their feelings. Um, and you see with youth sports, a lot of sports allow kids to get out their anger, their aggression, their feelings. Um, they give them a chance to be a leader, teamwork, communication skills. So you, you begin to see a lot of those things helping through uh, children participating in sports. More elbows on the court. more elbows on the court but uh, we've had the opportunity to be trained with the police officers so restorative practices has become a huge part of all of our programming so we're able to have those restorative circles before really you know getting at the heart of what kids need what their uh, what their feelings are and how they can manage throughout the day and giving them tools that they can use to kind of manage their own behaviors Talk a little bit more about that. What does that look like? We've had the discussion mm-hmm. about restorative justice in schools, mm-hmm. but you apply it a little differently, I imagine. Is it, is it a quick circle before each game? It's definitely a circle beforehand because I think you need to establish the rules, establish the respect level. Then there's also times where you do need to pull a player aside and and have a conversation with them, whether it's a program, a camp or clinic, or even day camp. We've had, uh, we've run day camps for the past six years where we have youth in a comprehensive summer camp from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. So having a child all day and making sure that, again, they have the tools that they need in order to function and be, and be productive. What ages are we talking about here? So we provide programming starting at about five years old, all the way up to about 21. So we provide uh, opportunities for our youngest campers and participating in summer camps, which are fully comprehensive, not just sports, but also academic camps. Um, And then all the way up to age between 14 and 21, providing them employment opportunities with our partnership with the city of Buffalo. Do you see a difference in the issues that you have to deal with based on the age of the child you're dealing with? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I think the, you know, different age groups come with different issues, um, especially, you know, our our youngest babies. Um, They may not know what their problems are, what their issues are, but they're displaying it through behaviors. And as you get older, I think our teenagers really respect the fact that we listen to them and giving them the opportunity to have a platform. We're actually going to launch a new program um, that we've kind of borrowed from Detroit PAL, where it's community conversations between youth and law enforcement. How does it work? What does it look like? What what happens? What do they do? And how would it translate here? So um, Ford Motor Company Foundation has really supported Detroit PAL over the past few years, especially in the midst of COVID and social unrest. Um, so this program was a program basically that was born out of 2020, beginning of pandemic, beginning of, of social unrest. You know, a lot our country was go- going through and still is going through at that time. So Critical Conversations is really allowing youth to have a platform to talk about um, their feelings towards law enforcement. Um, not just their feelings, but their perceptions, their thoughts, their ideas, um, all of that um, in their own words and giving them that platform and having police officers listen to that and take that information internally and be able to use that in order to improve their relationships with young people. Is it a matter of them just kind of listing their perceptions of police and then having the police say, no, that's right, no, that's not? It's a guided curriculum. 
Um, so the questions are very crafty, crafted to lead the conversations of children's true perspective on, on law enforcement. What kind of issues do they touch on? Uh, things like what happens when you get pulled over? How do you feel? What do you do? What do you think you should do? What should you not do? Um, and being able to have those conversations openly um, and having the officers explain how they feel. You know, a lot of them feel nervous. Mm. Um, they don't, you know, want an altercation. Um, they're, they're trained to protect themselves. You know, so there's two sides to the coin to that. Um, and being able to understand both perspectives keeps our youth safe. It'll keep our youth safe. It'll keep our officers safe and keep the integrity of their job. Um, and what they're supposed to do is serve and protect the community. And what is the target age? Our target age here in Buffalo is going to be 14 um, to 19. So basically 9th through 12th graders we'll be working with. And that's an age where I imagine they have had some interface with law enforcement already. Yes, they may have. Uh, they may or they may not have had. Right, but that could make uh, the conversation right. completely different. It Definitely. Less definitely. theoretical. Yes. It, well, different than uh, it, having a conversation with a 10-year-old. Yeah. Um, and, and that's part of, again, why PAL is so unique. Um, and that, you know, us going into neighborhoods and, you know, a 10-year-old saying, ooh, who did, you know, what happened? Because they <laughs> see a police officer and think something bad yeah, is yeah. happening when this officer is there just to play kickball. <laughs> just to play volleyball, just to interact with them in a positive way, because normally they have not, even as a 10-year-old, have seen a situation where the only time they've seen a police officer is mom got pulled over or they came to my house looking for someone or domestic violence situation. It's never been a positive experience. You know, they don't come into the school to just have a conversation with the kids normally. Um, so now we're trying to change that outlook, change that perspective, and really talk about the job at hand, the job at what they're supposed to do, um, especially in our community. And this program is launching in October? It is launching in October. We're having a press conference on October 4th. And so that is going to be an opportunity and a platform for our teenagers to actually talk a little bit about um, some of their fears, some of the their things that they've been thinking about, some questions that they may have, um, because at the end of the day, we want our community safe. Do you think and this is almost a rhetorical question because you wouldn't be doing it if you didn't think there was a need. <laughs> but do you think that the average kid has problems relating to the average cop? I, you know, I, I think so. I think police community relations um, is really important. I mean, statistics have shown uh, with more community policing on the streets, uh, with more uh, police officers engaging in the community with parents and with kids, you're starting to see a decrease in crime because they're starting to trust the police. They're starting to have those conversations and feel protected. Um, so I do think that it definitely has an impact on our community. Nakia Kemp is here. She's the director of the Buffalo Police Athletic League. Talk to me about specifically the area around Jefferson Avenue. What are you seeing there? What does the community need right now? I think the community needs needs a lot. Um, not that it didn't uh, need it before, but I think that right now um, the community is really hurting. And I think it's, it's hurting not just emotionally, 
um, and mentally. I think it's hurting financially. Um, there was a lot of uh, dollars put in to the immediate issues in the aftermath of this horrible tragedy. And I think that right now we're really feeling the impact on the um, financial crisis that the city is having right now. So definitely there's a lot, lot more work to be done. And by financially, you mean just basic business investment? What, what, uh, what's the Definitely. issue Definitely. Business investments, uh, youth investment dollars, uh, focusing on jobs um, and building up that area um, because food securities is an issue, financial security is an issue, um, and really building up that area. It really just exposed uh, a lot of what is needed specifically on the east side of Buffalo. Would one big, large factory help? I mean, if, if we were able to place, I don't know, something there, mm -hmm. not necessarily storefronts, but one big silver bullet something <laughs> that could employ a lot of people, buck back against that argument. Would that help? I, I think anything would help. Okay. Um, that, that, that's a plus to the community. But I also think putting supports in there, because if you're going to put you know, some something in there, you're going to need to make sure that people are trained for jobs, that you have an educational system that can support the educational pieces. Uh, working parents, you want to make sure there's daycare readily available. You want to make sure that there's quality programs and supports around all of those areas. So you can't just say, here's the magic bullet, here yeah. it is, without addressing all of the issues. In, in part, that's why I asked the question, mm -hmm. because you're right. You're, you're looking at it much more holistically. Oh, There's absolutely. a bunch of things that you say we need to do. There's a ton. I mean, we, you know, at Police Athletic League have, have dabbled in, you know, quite a few different things where we see that there's a need, such as bike helmets. Uh, people don't think that there's a, you know, a big thing, but we give away thousands of bike helmets every year because traumatic brain injury is prevalent. It's and a it's, thing. And it's, yeah. it's a thing. I mean, people ride their bikes and scooters and they you fall and you, you hit your head and you have a traumatic brain injury and ECMC started seeing an uptake in brain injuries and so therefore we started you know giving away bike helmets another example we started with car seat checks and giveaways um, the the pandemic and then this this crisis on Jefferson happened and immediately folks were okay well we need to get food they were traveling with their infants in you know in ride shares mm. with no car seat so these are things that people don't think about, but these are areas where we know that there's a, a high rate of children who die due to car accidents because they're not properly in car seats. Um, I, I, right. have, I have heard a lot of people say mm -hmm. that they will never enter that tops. Mm -hmm. um, how then do we get more alternative outlets, be it the African-American Food Co-op or... Mm -hmm or I don't know, uh, and Aldi's, a Dash's, a, a Wegman's. Right. How, do, how, how do we get something else in there? I, I think that those conversations had need to be had on, a, on an upper level, and I'm sure that they are happening, um, and those things are happening. But what we've done um, as part of our organization, again, I mentioned that we've looked at food security as well. Um, we've actually started uh, this past summer, actually during COVID, we started doing virtual cooking classes. I think it's really important um, that families understand that they can grow their own food mm. and how they can grow their own food and having access to once you grow your own food, 
What exactly do you do with a zucchini? What exactly do you do with a tomato? How can you create he healthy meals that are affordable? So I think that that's a part of the holistic um, whole child, again, piece two, not just offering the sports activities, because we were at Johnny B. Wiley Stadium and we were there, you know, that day, you know, creating, you know, playing flat flag football, you know, at the stadium right down the street and hundreds of kids participating. But how do we make sure that those hundreds of kids participating in a sports activity, that they have those other resources such as connecting them with, with food and food security? What kind of mental health programs do you still see the need for? Uh, we're continuing uh, restorative practices. Uh, we're continuing our partnership with Say Yes Buffalo to provide social and emotional support and counseling for our kids all summer. Um, we actually continued programming that next weekend after um, that incident on May 14th um, because we felt the need to be there for, for kids and we felt the need um, to not live in fear. And so we continue to offer programming for those families and kids who wanted an outlet or wanted to talk to somebody and making sure that we were readily available to continue pressing on with what we do. I don't know if this violates any confidentiality for you to tell me. Mm -hmm. But what kind of issues do they raise? You, you talked at the top of the program about anxiety. Mm -hmm. do, do they just come to you and say, I'm scared? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Ab absolutely. Absolutely. And I think as adults, we're scared too. Uh, yeah. How, how do you respond? <laughs> we, we, live, we, we live in fear, but, um, you know, it's important to, to keep explaining to children and even adults that, you know, I believe in faith and a higher power. Um, and so we really want to make sure that while they're with us, that they feel safe and that they feel it's okay to feel um, it's okay to express your feelings. It's okay to cry. It's okay to not want to participate today and give them space and grace. I think that that's the best way we can put it is giving our, our youth space and grace to grieve and deal with what they're dealing with on their own terms. Do you talk about race? The shooter obviously mm -hmm. targeted people because of the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, because we're a youth sports organization, we have um, a lot of diversity. We have kids that come from all over. We have tennis camp that runs at Delaware Park, and we see we have a lot of diverse programs. And so our children are used to being around our children. And so we have to have the difficult conversations about hate because that's really what it boils down to. You know, children are, are taught to hate and it's a choice and simultaneously do you teach children that there are people out there that will hate them absolutely i think how, that, how yeah, do you address that it's part of life you can't walk out the door and think that every day is going to be you know roses and everything is going to be <laughs> perfect i mean you just don't know you can't control other people's actions you can only control yours if you show love to people then you hope that they will show love back to you and that's what we want our, our kids to see being a good teammate being a good player at a game having fun being a child just just living your life and, and having a good time is what we want to instill with, within our kids. I've heard people say that part of the solution is, mm -hmm. quite frankly, just more integration. Mm -hmm. um, instead of my wife and I uh, going out to Orchard Park for a steak, mm -hmm. find a steakhouse on Jefferson, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember the one, uh, I was at Juneteenth and right behind the park there, Black by Demand. 
mm-hmm. having a sandwich there, getting into the neighborhood, doing more into the neighborhood for the sake of integration. Right. Do you think that'll work? I think that it it, it has worked in some ways. Um, I think, again, that there are many solutions out there that are viable solutions. Definitely supporting the businesses within the community is huge. Um, I know that there has been campaigns across the city like Buy Black Buffalo, um, getting folks to come out and really support because I think, you know, we want to economically boost, but also, again, bring children uh, one, we run basketball leagues, which was one mm. of the first things that you know Pal is known for. But one of the unique things about Buffalo Pal is we not only create these spaces for youth um, to come together, we offer diverse spaces because guess what? These kids from Orchard Park, West Seneca, you know, East Amherst, they come and they play children who reside in the city of Buffalo, who may go to a Burgard or may go to, you know, they get the opportunity because they don't play. They would never play teams that are not within their league, within their school systems because the way the school system is set up. But we won't go there. (laughs) Um, But Uh, we won't. I was going to go there. But. PAL offers a unique opportunity for those youth to interact with kids they would never otherwise interact with because, you know, they they wouldn't interact with them. Yeah. So now they're all coming to a McNeeka Center on Clinton, Clinton. Avenue and yeah. they're playing all day and, and they have the opportunity. They say, oh, we love this. You know, we love bringing our, our teams here. We, they get to play the best of the best. You know, we were playing McKinley today or we're playing, you know, South Park today and they get a chance to interact with other students, other kids, and they're having these conversations on and off the court. Do the kids drag the parents along Part of the reason I asked my earlier question <laughs> about integration mm-hmm. is the broader discussion. Right, right. Yeah, it's certainly cool that you'll have a black and a white on the court together. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, mm-hmm. is there a space there for that sort of discussion? Certainly a need, but is right. there a space for it? It absolutely happens because we all know that sports is the great unifier. I mean, when you talk about the Buffalo Bills and you, I mean, it doesn't matter what color you come from, what race, what background, what social economic, it cuts across all of those barriers all of those barriers. So when you're at a a high school basketball game and you're sitting there and you see two sets of parents, their, their camaraderie, they're doing high fives, they're laughing, they're having a good time, and you start to see friendships form among the parents of an Orchard Park parent and a parent that lives on the east side of Buffalo. And you don't get that that often. Forgive my skepticism, but that Mm -hmm. actually happens. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Absolutely. There's kids who've been in leagues for years. Their parents have become friends. They've visited each other. I mean, it's definitely happening. Talk about the broader discussion that needs to be had. I think the broader discussion um, that needs to be had um, needs to be had with our children. I think that um, adults are kind of, a lot of them are set in their ways and may not change but as a child you have the opportunity to mold a mind you have an opportunity to give them an experience that they wouldn't otherwise have and so you know programs like buffalo pal allow these children to have experiences that they would not be able to have and be able to have these interactions that they may not be able to have because they can't afford it because it all comes down to the social economic status mm-hmm. as well you know you can afford what you can afford can you 
uh, go to the Buffalo Zoo? Would I be able to take my, my five kids to the Buffalo Zoo? Would I be able to afford to take them all and buy tickets to the Buffalo Zoo? You may or may not, but that's a socioeconomic barrier that allows only certain groups to take advantage of certain things. So knocking down those barriers is, is a huge, 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 huge thing that we need to focus on, is making the, the, the playing field level for all of our kids. That's Nakia Kemp. This has been Buffalo What's Next Producer Picks. Highlights of WBFO's daily discussion program. We're on the air each morning at 10 with a replay each night at 9. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or just listen on demand at WBFO.org. I'm Angelie Preston. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.